Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. Let me read this to you, and we'll begin to break it down. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The, king, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no king kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. 
they, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he is who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, if you remember where we left off a few weeks ago, Darius has just become king over Babylon. Power had been given him by Cyrus. Remember how we saw that he had been given authority? And most likely, he's over the whole area of Babylon, not of the whole kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus is in charge of that. But over the area of Babylon, Darius is now in charge. Now, Darius, in order to have control over the area that he's governing, decides that he's going to put satraps or officials over them. And then over those 120 satraps, he has three high officials over all the satraps to keep track of them. It's actually to make sure that all the taxes are being collected. You know, that's why he's, he's noticed in the beginning of our story that he would suffer no loss. So they're kind of making sure that everybody pays their taxes and there's governance in that way. But Daniel is made one of the three high officials over all the satraps. But Darius is so impressed with Daniel that he plans to put him over the whole kingdom under himself. He's not just impressed that he's one of the top three. He says, you know what, I think I'm going to put you over the whole kingdom besides himself. Now, normally, high officials of the previous regime are killed. I don't know if you know that or not, but usually when a new regime comes in, they get rid of all the people that might have a claim to their power And so why isn't Daniel been killed? You remember at the end of our study last time, he had just been made third ruler in the kingdom, remember, with uh, Belshazzar and and his father. And so he was going to be a co-regent with them. How come he wasn't killed? Well, there's speculation here, but I can, whenever I speculate, I always use scripture to back up the speculation. We don't know the specifics as to why Daniel was spared, but we can surmise That word had already spread to Darius about Daniel and his God and his wisdom and how he had rebuked Belshazzar and predicted the Persians and the Medes taking over. Word had probably gotten to him. There's a precedent of what I'm talking to you here, and it's in the book of Jeremiah. Go with me to Jeremiah 39. Let me show you what I want you to see here. In Jeremiah 39, we'll start in verse 11. You'll notice, if you remember from our study of Ezekiel, which also made us study Jeremiah at that time, that When Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem, he had heard of Jeremiah, and he spoke well of him. And he actually blessed Jeremiah when he was judging the king, Zedekiah, when he came in to take over. Look at Jeremiah 39, starting in verse 11. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar and Rabsaris, Nergal Sarazi, that's close, and Rabmag and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived 
among the people. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Keep reading up to verse 5. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah, who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. But now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you, come with me to Babylon. Come and I'll look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Hickam, son of Shaphan, who the king of Babylon appointed governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. So if you see at this passage, when Nebuchadnezzar is coming in to destroy Babylon, remember he's on his third wave now. Word had already gotten to Nebuchadnezzar about this man of God, Jeremiah, who has been saying this is going to happen. He had been telling the people who had already been taken captive into Babylon and telling the people that were in Jerusalem and still, God's going to do this and you, you've got to stop fighting it. And just if you submit to what God has already said the judgment's going to be, it'll go well for you. If you fight against it, it's going to be bad. And then when Nebuchadnezzar comes, he tells his captain of the guard, you go find this guy, Jeremiah, and you tell him he gets to do whatever he wants. If he wants to come live in Babylon, we'll treat him good. If he wants to stay in Jerusalem and, and Judah, we'll let him do that as well. And here, Jeremiah was among the captives being led away in chains. And in the midst of that, they come and take his chains off and say, Oh, not only are you free to go wherever you want, here's some food, here's a present, here's an allowance. So we see a precedent here of the fact that because God's man was known even to a wicked nation and a wicked king, they were like, we want someone like that with us. And chances are real good. That's why Daniel wasn't ki killed, even though he had been made third in all power over, over Babylon. And Darius comes in, and he sets up all these 120 satraps, and then three high officials over him, and he makes Daniel one of them. And he's so impressed in the brief period of time that he's dealing with Daniel, he's already got in mind to make him over the whole kingdom, besides, of course, his own authority. Now, knowing that Darius desires to promote Daniel even more, some of the satraps and officials come up with a plan to discredit Daniel. Now, I'm going to say this closely, because it looks like in our passage that all of them are involved in this. It even says the word all, but I'm going to clarify that for you in a little bit, so stick with me here. But some of the satraps and the high officials decide that they have to come up with a plan for a way to discredit Daniel. They don't want him to be over all of them. They know that kings thinking about doing this. And we don't have time to get into that tonight because that would chase us down a whole road that we just don't have time to get into. But look real quick, go back to Daniel chapter 6 and look at what they say to him in verse 13 of chapter 6. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. 
I don't know if you've tracked with us yet or not. Does anybody want to take a wild guess at how old Daniel is at this time? He's about 80 years old. He's been in captivity now for almost 70 years. He's been revered and and respected, and he's made his way up in, in the Babylonian kingdom. Why do these guys hate him still? Because he's a Jew. Because he's a Jew. That's the real issue going on here. Again, it would take the rest of our night to deal with that issue. We're not going to chase that bird, at least not for now. But we're just going to leave that for right now. So they have decided that what they're going to do is they're going to come up with a plan to find a way to discredit Daniel by watching how he deals with the business affairs. And that's what the passage says. They're looking at how he deals, does his job. Now, they know, even though they're high officials, that they probably are skimming off the pot. They're probably taking bribes because that's how they do business. And they're pretty sure Daniel's going to be like them. So all they have to do is find him cheating on the books a little bit and they can go and bring it to Darius and say, look what he's done. But they weren't able to. Let me ask you a question. If your life was carefully examined, could anybody find fault with you on how you conduct your life when it comes to your job? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at the, I'm going to show you a few passages of Scripture here. And one, the third one I'm going to show you is going to be invaluable for us at the end of our study. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live your life in such a way that even though they try to find something about you that they don't like, they don't have anything. If they tried to say, well, he... Doesn't pay his taxes. They couldn't prove it because you pay your taxes. Or he cheats on his wife. They couldn't prove it because you don't cheat on your wife. They would examine you. Are you living your life in such a way that they could find nothing when it comes to how you conduct yourself in your daily life, in your business affairs? They would accuse you. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 14 and 15. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Then he goes on and said, Hang, hold on fast to the word of life, so that I won't have labored in vain. Look closely at what the scripture says again. We as Christians who are followers of Christ should be living our lives in such a way that we trust God that we're not even a negative person. We don't grumble and complain. We don't dispute. We live peaceably in such a way that we shine. By the way, in the world today, would we not agree things are getting pretty dark? You have the greatest opportunity to shine without even going full watt. You ever think about those three three level bulbs? You don't even have to get to the third level nowadays to shine. But at the same time, and this is one of the things I've had to deal with over the last three weeks as I've been traveling around the country and speaking to churches. 
One of the saddest things is, as I've traveled the country and I deal with churches, the way the world is acting at this time has made its way into the church. The world today is accusing each other and, and setting up their camps and dividing over opinions and whether or not you agree with this movement or that movement. And if you don't agree with me, you're my enemy. And we see people getting just attacking each other because they have different views. Would we not agree that that's happening in the world today? But you know what's happening in our churches too. We're dividing over masks and vaccines and different opinions on these things. And all of us have opinions on them. And there's nothing wrong with having an opinion on them. But the Bible actually says in Romans 14 in two different places, actually three different places, it says, one, you need to be fully convinced of what you believe God's telling you. Then it also says that you're not to be the judge of somebody else or their Lord because the Lord's going to take care of them. And thirdly, you can double check me on this one in Romans 14, 22, when it comes to these disputable matters like vaccines and masks, the Bible says what you believe about these things keep between yourself and God. Yet what are Christians doing now? They're judging each other, attacking each other, whether or not they've had a vaccine or didn't have the vaccine. And if you really love people, you'd wear a mask. Well, if you really love and all this stuff, let me say something to you, folks. The Bible says we're to be living our lives in this time in which people notice there's a difference about us. And one of the greatest ways they'll see that is a peace and a joy and, well, do everything without grumbling or disputing. And again, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Go with me to Acts 24. Paul has been arrested for preaching the gospel. Acts 24. We'll look at verses 10 through 21. And this will be valuable for us at the end of our study tonight. But in Acts chapter, 10, verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 10 then the governor had nodded him to speak, nodded to him to speak. And so Paul replies. Now he's standing in front of not only Romans, but also the Jews. And he says this, he says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. In other words, you can double check. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple, or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that's Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this. They found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they thought to be, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it's respect, with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul even was able to say in that courtroom scene, they're accusing me of things, but they have no proof because they're not true. And if you go back and you just double check and you ask people that were there, they'll realize, first of all, that everything they're accusing me of, I didn't do. And listen closely, it'll be important at the end of our study, I wasn't causing a stir. I was doing what God had me do, and I wasn't being a jerk about it. 
We'll leave that for now. Let me just say this to you as well. He, Paul here said that it, it, he tries to keep a clear conscience before God and man. It will do you well to have a regular checkup, would it not, physically for your, you know, for your physical health? Wouldn't hurt you to do regular checkups for your spiritual health, but be careful. Don't examine yourself. You're not qualified. You either will give yourself a good report when you don't deserve one, or you'll be harder on yourself than God would be. Actually, the Bible says that we, when we allow God to examine our, us, that's how we get the checkup. We humble ourselves and say, Lord, if there's something in me, I'm going to ask you to show it to me. And if he brings it to your mind, deal with it. But don't go listening to people telling you what they think you ought to be doing or anything like that. Let the Lord tell you. Let me show you a couple of passages that say that. Go to Psalm 139 real quick. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Listen to what David says. By the way, this is at the end of a whole psalm when he talks about how, God, you knew everything about me. You know when I get up, when I lie down, even for words on my tongue, you know it completely. Listen to verses 23 and 24. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I want to stay humble and open before you. And I want regular checkups. Show me if there's stuff. And I'm ready to listen. Show me if there's anything. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 5. First Corinthians 4 verse 1. Paul said, This is how one should regard us, leaders in the church, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I found over the years that when I find myself judging people around me or making judgments about people around me, it's usually because my real motive is I want to feel better about myself. And Paul said, you know what? I don't even examine myself. By the way, if you do a study of scripture, you'll find only a couple of places where it says examine yourself. There's only two. One is in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Let me ask you a question. How many of you, show of hands, have examined yourself and you know Jesus is in you? All right, you don't have to do that one anymore then, do you? Because once he comes in, he never leaves. So that one's already off the table, isn't it? There's only one other one. And that's in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. 11. But again, in that context, it's talking about when you take the Lord's Supper, make sure that your heart can honestly say, I'm actually living out what this represents. I have been treating my brothers and sisters well, because that's what it's talking about. Examine yourself. Am I treating my brothers and sisters well? And so, folks, let me just tell you, Daniel lived his life in such a way that even though a group of guys, by the way, this, go back to Daniel 6. I'm not going to point out all the places that they're there, but you'll see this word. Uh, uh, look at verse 6. These high officials and satraps came by agreement. You'll see that a lot. And when you say, uh, look again at verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king. Actually, another translation for that word could mean a throng. There was a group of them. So it wasn't a small number that were in on this. It was a pretty good-sized number. 
I'm going to show you later on just a little bit that it wasn't all 120 satraps. But at the same time, these guys have all gotten together because they don't like Daniel because he's a Jew and they want to get him accused before Darius. And so they intentionally send out private investigators and spies and all these things to try to find something that he's doing underhanded or they can get him accused and there's nothing. My prayer is that all of us can live our lives in such a way that if someone did try to find something about us, they couldn't. So since they can't find any fault in Daniel's business affairs, they decide to go after him by using his faith in his God and his obedience to God's word to trap him. They know that they can't get anything against him that way, in the world's ways. But now they say, all right, we know something about this guy. He's going to be more devoted to his God than he will be man. Let's use his obedience to God as a trap. By the way, before we go any further, go with me to John chapter 8. I just want you to know that it isn't just Daniel that this happened to. It happened to Jesus. John chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Look closely. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. As you know, he then goes down, writes in the dirt, and says, Would you, those of you without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they started throwing the stones away and walking away. But why did they say, the law says, they were just trying to find some way to trap him and bring a charge against him? Be careful. Be careful of using scripture to twist and manipulate people. The word of God's powerful all by itself. The Bible says that we're to in love, share the truth, and then leave it. If you think you're going to trap somebody with the word, that sounds a little bit more like the enemy than Jesus. So they decide that they're going to trap him. They knew Daniel prayed regularly to his God. Now, Daniel would pray three times each day. We see, go back in Daniel 6, which direction would he pray? Does anybody know? Toward Jerusalem. Now, this is very interesting here. Don't turn this into a legalistic thing where you've got to now find a compass in your house and find out where Jerusalem is. And, but listen closely. He would pray three times each day toward Jerusalem, most likely, most likely around the times of the three daily sacrifices. Look at verse 10 again. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Jump over to chapter 9. You're going to see Daniel praying again around these times. Look at verses 20 and 21. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So here we see, putting scripture together, that we know he prayed three times a day. And at this time, he was praying in one of those three times a day. And Gabriel came to him when? 
in the midst of his prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice, chances are real good that during the three sacrificial times when they used to offer the sacrifices in the temple is when Daniel prayed. Now listen closely. I said used to because at this point, Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed the temple. There is no temple. But he's still praying toward Jerusalem, even though the temple doesn't exist. At the same time, the sacrifices used to be offered, even though the temple doesn't exist. You want to know why? Because the Bible said to. Where did it say that? Oh, that's my job. Let me take you there. Go to 1 Kings 8. Go to 1 Kings 8. I'm going to read to you verses 22 through 30, and then verses 46 through 53. 1 Kings 8, 22 through 30. And then 46 through 53. Now, in 1 Kings 8, we got Samuel now, he's dedicating the temple that he's built, and he's praying. And look at chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord of God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So here he's saying, pray, when we pray with the hearts toward here. Now it's not meaning literally in that direction. It means that in other words, this is where you have, you've told us to build this, and you've given us the dimensions and the specific way to do it, and we've done it, and it's going to be where you demonstrate you're with us, and we want to keep in mind that you're with us, and so we're going to pray toward this place. But now, jump over to verse 46 in chapter 8. The prayer continues, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to the fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all the transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they might have compassion on them, 
For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Look closely. When he's built, the temple's been built and dedicated, and he's praying this amazing prayer, he also says, And Lord, if these people Israel sin against you and turn from you, and your judgment is to have them taken captive into another land, which you have already said you would do, but if they're in that land, and they pray toward this property, toward this holy hill, and they confess their sin and ask you to forgive, please hear their prayer and bring them back to this place. What had Daniel been doing every day, three times a day, ever since he had been taken captive into Babylon? Fulfilling the promise and the prayer of 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 and following. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 9, when he's praying for his holy city and the people of Israel. And what Gabriel comes and tells him. We'll get to that in time. But folks, Daniel was praying three times a day because God had said, if you'll focus your heart back here, where I promise to bless you, I'll hear and I'll forgive. By the way, was God real quick in our definition of hearing and forgiving? No. Remember, he had already decreed it's going to be 70 years. We'll get to that in chapter 9 as well. And Daniel's doing the math in chapter 9. He realizes the time's coming to an end, and God's word is true. But the zealous leaders devised a plan that would doom David. I'm sorry, not Dan David, Daniel. They knew that he would always obey his God over the decrees of men. So they tricked Darius into signing a law that no one could pray to any God or anyone except Darius for one whole month. Now, once the law was signed, it could not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. So go back to chapter 6 of Daniel and look at verses 6 through 9 again. Chapter 6, verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement, that's that throng again, to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Go with me real quick to Esther chapter 1. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but the story of Esther and Mordecai happens in Babylon during the time of the Medo-Persia kingdom. It's going to be after Daniel's time. There's going to be a different king, not Darius. It's going to be a different king, Ahasuerus who's king at that time. But it happens in Babylon under the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Look at Esther chapter 1, verse 19. It says, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, 
and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So here it is again. You see, if there was a law written and signed by the king of the law, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, even the king couldn't change the law. Once it was signed, that law had to be fulfilled. Jump over to chapter 8 in Esther. Look at verses 7 and 8. Esther 8, verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, and it cannot be revoked. So here again we see that when there was a law written and signed by the king and sealed by the king's ring, it could not be changed. Now, if you remember in the story of Esther, the law had already been signed that the Jews were allowed to be killed. But they, the king said, okay, well, we can't change that law, but we'll make another one that says that the Jews can defend themselves and do whatever they want to anybody that attacks them. And so that's how they got around it in that situation there. So now they've signed this law. The king Darius has signed this law that no one can pray to any other god or man except King Darius for a month. I want you to notice the lie in chapter 6, verse 7. Go back to Daniel 6. Look at the verse 7. It says, All the high officials of the kingdom, prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. How do we know that that's not true? That all the satraps, all the high officials... All are in agreement that this is to be done. Daniel's one of the high officials. We know he didn't sign this, and he's not in agreement with this. Not only that, it makes it sound like they're all in on this. They're not. Let me show you a couple of reasons why. Go to chapter 6 and look at verse 24. This is after Daniel's release from the lion's den, and the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. By the way, if he's throwing in 120 satraps, and their wives, and their children, there ain't enough room in that pit. This isn't all of them. These are the ones who had done the dirty deed, who had gotten together to conspire against Daniel. Oh, there's a passage in Psalm 37. Go to Psalm 37. I love God's word. Look at Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Look at the very next verses. Verse 14 and following, the wicked draws the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. By the way, you do remember Esther's story? Haman had the gallows made for who? Mordecai. Who, who ended up hanging on the gallows? Haman. Uh, these guys had made a decree that Daniel was going to end up in the lion's den. By the way, who ended up in the lion's den? Folks, would you please take a deep breath when you see the wickedness of mankind that's going on right now? 
Would you please take a deep breath and relax and know that your God is still in control and he's keeping track? And even though it may look like they're winning and that they're going to get what they want, you know what? We may, as Christians for a season, have to put up with some uncomfortableness. Have we not already just a little bit in the past year or so? But God's keeping track. And the things that they have plotted to get rid of us, they're going to be ending up in them themselves. These men, by the way, also feigned respect for Darius. But they're actually manipulating him and using his authority for their purposes. Did you, did you catch that? They come to him and they say, nobody, we don't want anybody to bow or request to any other God or human except you for the next month. But they really don't respect Darius. They're just using his authority to get after Daniel because they can't get after Daniel themselves. They're just using his authority. I'm not going to have you go there because of time. In Matthew 22, we see the same thing happen when the, the Pharisees come to Jesus with the Herodians. And they say, well, you, you're wise and we know that you know everything. So we're going to ask you a question. But they were just trying to manipulate him. By the way, be careful. You and I do it too. You've heard me talk about this over the years. In Luke 10, verse 38 through 42, we see the story of Martha and Mary and how Martha says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. She calls him Lord, but then bosses Jesus around. Be careful. We do that too sometimes. We all want to use his authority to get what we want done. <clears throat> kind of goes to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, doesn't it? We all want to use God's authority to get what we want done. Don't go there. It also appears that Darius loved and respected Daniel, as we saw earlier. And when he realized that there are other, these other officials, what they were up to, he tried to come up with a loophole, but he found none. Look at verse 14 again, Daniel 6, verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. By the way, there's even a strong chance he called Daniel in and said, Hey, you're one of the wisest guys around. What can we do here? And the answer was, let me go to the pit. Because this law can't be changed. The law can't be changed. He also wanted Daniel's God to be real. And powerful enough to save Daniel. Look at verses 16 through 20. The king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? We'll come back to the answer to that in just a little bit. He's really wanting Daniel's God to be real in this situation. I can't save you. I hope your God can save you. By the way, I read a commentator make a point here, and I wrote it down in my notes. I think it's pretty cool. He says this. He says that Darius would have rested better that night if he knew that while he was fasting, the lions were fasting too. Isn't that kind of cool? If only he knew that the lions were fasting with him. 
But notice Darius's description of Daniel's life of worship and obedience to God. Look at verse 16 and look at verse 20. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Look at verse 20. As he came to the near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, serve the living God. Has your God, here it is again, whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Let me ask you a question. Can that be said about you? That you are someone that faithfully follows God. Now, please don't hear perfection. David was known as a man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? No, he wasn't. Saul, if you look at Saul's life, King Saul, King Saul looked really impressive at the beginning of his kingship. The Spirit of God came upon him. He prophesied and people said, is Saul among the prophets? He actually is very humble at the beginning. There's a group of people that don't want him to be king. And then he has his first victory as a king. And some other people say, let's go get the people that didn't want you to be king and kill him. And he said, no, relax. You know what? People have bad days. I'm not going to go after them. And he started off really good. But then he didn't finish well. It got worse and worse and more and more proud and more and more vindictive. He didn't serve God continually. David wasn't perfect, but you know what? When he realized he sinned, his heart was quick to repentance because he wanted to walk with God. I want you to turn with me real quick to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 16 and we'll go to chapter 3, verse 5. I'm going to ask you to mark these verses down. Ask God to give you this type of life. I want you to sincerely ask God to make it so that you serve him continually. By the way, the Bible says if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know we have the things that we ask, right? Oh, but when you ask, don't doubt. Believe that it's going to happen. Let me ask you a question. Is it according to God's will? Is it something that God desires that you serve him continually? Listen closely to 2 Thessalonians starting in chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Who's establishing us in every good work and word? God is. Not me trying to do a better job, but him. Keep reading. Finally, brothers, Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts. To the love of God and to the steadfastness, perseverance of Christ. Folks, I'm going to tell you, if you want it and really want it, you ask God, he will do it. The king finds Daniel unharmed in the morning and also finds out that Daniel was not alone that night in the den with the lions, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not alone in the fire. Go to Psalm 34 real quick. Go to look at verse 7. Psalm 34, verse 7. By the way, this isn't Jesus in there with him like it was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it was an angel of the Lord. 
And look at Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He came into the den that night and shut the mouths of the lions. I know, by the way, that's a pretty powerful angel that he can just come in and shut all the lions' mouths. By the way, do you realize that we have Jesus now indwelling us and keeping us company too? We have angels that serve those who are inheriting salvation. We have angels. Don't, don't try to find out who your angel is and go worship your angel. Keep your eyes on Jesus. But he uses angels in our lives still. But you have Jesus himself. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Look at John 16 real quick. John 16 verses 32 and 33. Jesus Himself says this in the night that he's a go to the, going to the cross. In John 16, verses 30, uh, 32 and 33. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, Jesus said, for the Father is with me. Now I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jump over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. At the end of Paul's life, we hear Paul say something almost identical to what Jesus has just said. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was what? Rescued from the lion's mouth. Oh, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate's getting irate because Jesus ain't talking. And he says, don't you realize you, I have the authority to have you put to death or released? And Jesus calmly looks at him and says, you'd have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my Father. In other words, I'm not looking to you for my help. I'm looking beyond you. There's someone that's in control. And if he wants me to be released, I'll be released. And if he doesn't, I won't. And Jesus calmly disobeyed the authority, but obeyed the Father. I'm not going to spend any time on this. We've dealt with it in the past. But when we live for self, when we live from our flesh instead of obedience to God and his word, we lose some of that protection as we grieve and we quench the spirit. Write these down and go look at them later on because of where we are tonight and where I want to finish. I don't want to spend too much time on this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 24. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, talking about the fact that we can grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But His power is always available to those who believe, and He will protect and empower. But we have to be leaning on Him throughout the day. At the same time, when we decide to live for ourselves and take care of it in our own our hands, or we want to... We feel like we have to take care of ourselves, like God can't. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave, but he'll say, sounds like you got it all under control. And he'll back away. 
And you miss out on the power and the blessings of God. Folks, I'm not perfect in this, but I've begun to learn how to live like this. And I've seen God do so many amazing blessings. The Bible actually says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who fear the Lord because those who fear him have no lacks. Let me just say this to you. I don't want to go back into living the life I used to live when I thought it was up to me to count every penny and to make it all work out. When I learned to trust him and just do what he said and be generous and watch. It's been amazing to watch God do things that just say, wow, Lord, really? I can't believe it. Thank you. Here's how we're going to close tonight, though, and I want you to listen to me with time we have. Uh, we may chase this some more next week. We'll see. Lastly, Daniel's disobedience was not a public rebellion to cause a stir. Remember Paul saying that he made no commotion? Daniel didn't run to the king to cry out against this unfair rule. He quietly obeyed God, and God vindicated him. By the way, I prayed over this and said, Lord, are there any instances where I see an individual going to the king and saying, this isn't fair? And he brought one to my mind. Esther. Remember, we'd looked at Esther a little earlier. But then he brought this to my mind. And this has helped me a lot because if you know anything about Esther's story, she says to the, she takes her life into her hands by going before the king without being asked. And, and, and he says, you're welcome to come. What do you want? And she said, I really want you and some people to come to a meal. And he says, okay. And if you know the story, she makes the meal. And, and, and the king says, okay, you made the meal. What, what do you want? And she has her opportunity. The king says, what do you want? And she goes, um, could you come back tomorrow night? Can I make another meal? And I remember reading that going, he may not say yes to this one. But if you remember, she had been fasting and praying along with Mordecai. And the spirit of God is telling her, not yet. It didn't make sense to me as I read the story. I would have thought, dude, you got a great upper door. You take that upper. God's opened the door. That's what the people told David when King Saul came into the cave they were hiding in to, to go to the bathroom. And everybody said, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. But David knew how to listen to the spirit. and He waited on God. He even felt bad for cutting a piece of his robe to show that he could have killed him. He felt bad about that. He said, I shouldn't even have done that. Esther waits and prayerfully as God directs her brings it up later on. She on Mordecai also trusted that if they said nothing that relief and deliverance for the Jews would still come. Go back to Esther again chapter 4. Look at verse 14. One of my most favorite passages of scripture in the whole Bible. Esther chapter 4 verse 14. Mordecai is speaking to Esther and he says look I think God might have you say something to the king. But in chapter 4, verse 14, Mordecai says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, don't think God needs you. It's not if you don't do anything and nothing's going to happen. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. I love how you brought that up as well. She didn't even make a public stink about the law. She brought him to a private dinner. 
That's a great point, Elise. I didn't even see that aspect of it. Thank you. By the way, Acts 17, 24 through 25 actually says that God's not served by human hands if he needs anything. Let me say this to you folks. The Bible does say that there are times that we as Christians are to not obey the governing authorities when they tell us to do something that the word of God says is wrong. But too many of us think that's our opportunity to cause a stir, to make a stink, and to be jerks. It's not what the Bible teaches. You just obey God quietly. And if the consequences come, they come. If God spares you, he spares you. And we know of some that have been spared. We know of others around the globe who have ended up in prison in other parts of the globe because of their faith in Jesus and the fact that they keep preaching the gospel even though that nation says they can't. Pastors who have been arrested and kept in prison away from their families for years at a time. Folks, let me just tell you, I don't know how it's all going to play out, but Christians have got to stop thinking, I'm going to rebel. God's word says I can. Well, if you look at the scriptures, even Jesus obeyed God, but he didn't cause a stir. He submitted himself to God. And we don't know if Darius became a worshiper of Daniel's God or not. But he definitely described him pretty well in his edict to all the people of Babylon. Let's close tonight with chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. Listen to how God prophesies and speaks through King Darius. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel, it is he who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Let me ask you a quick question. How did Darius know that? I mean, look at what he says. He's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in him. Did Daniel sit him down and give him a lecture on who God is? He lived it out. And he quietly trusted the Lord. And he lived his whole life continually trusting and serving God in such a way that over time, People were noticing. And then God, even in this instance, did an amazing miracle to rescue him to the point that this king, whether he came a believer or not, I don't know, was able to say, this God is the one who's going to have the dominion that lasts forever. There's a whole lot more we can bring out, but let me just say this too as we close. This God is still alive and working on behalf of all who fear him today. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.